0: So uh, a couple people asked me to tape this because they couldn't make it, so about halfway through Wesley's going to wave his arm and I'm going to flip the tape over. So um, I'm glad Gene is here because every Sunday he tells us all that the Center is going to um, foster a new world view, but he never elaborates. <laughs> so um, Joel and I have been working on this for ten years or so and uh, just to give you a little bit of the background um, the idea if if you've uh, well, of course you've all read the uh, the challenge and response book and so you all know that it talks about this and about creating a new worldview and the clue to doing that is mathematics and the reason for that is which Joel explains in that book is that the paradox of science uh, is lies in the subject-object distinction, and that's exactly where mysticism begins. And so here's this connection between science and mysticism right with the subject-object distinction, and that's the, the secret word here is distinction, because we're going to be getting into that um, in some detail, and that's what will be elaborating upon to make this connection. So part of this uh, will be just to give you a little background on this idea of mathematics as a language that could possibly connect uh, science and mysticism, and how it relates, how the idea of distinction relates to modern mathematics. And, uh, and then I'll, uh, I'll get into the actual work that Joel and I have done which has to do with with, uh, relating the idea of distinction to uh, some elementary mathematics. So uh, this basic concept that the whole world is mathematical uh, goes back as far as ancient Greece. And Pythagoras is famous for saying that everything is number. And what he meant by that were things like You didn't happen to bring your guitar, Damien, did you? Mm -mm.
1: There is Andre's guitar here.
0: Oh yeah? Yeah. Would you mind getting it? Because that that would uh, make a neat little demonstration. Uh, Because he connected it with music, and the idea is that the harmonies we hear in music have to do with mathematical ratios, uh, precise mathematical ratios of integers. And so here's a connection between the the natural uh, tones of music and mathematical ratios in particular numbers so um, that was one connection that he noticed and the other was uh, with the patterns there are all sorts of other patterns in nature like the the cycles of day and night and uh, months and years and the and, uh, movements of the planet. These are all cyclical things and you can measure their time. And then you compare, for example, how many days are in a year and there's a number of days per year. And so there you have a ratio of, uh, of numbers again. And these ratios, uh, he compared to the ratios of different tones of music and this is where the idea of the music of the spheres comes from because all the planets and stars were uh, envisioned to be on crystalline spheres that rotated and the different periods of revolution corresponded to uh, different numbers if you measure them they have different uh, lengths of time so uh, the sun will go around uh, in one year from season to season throughout the course of a year, and so that's 365 days, and so that ratio would be 365 to 1, and so on. And this is uh, a ratio that corresponded to a ratio of uh, tones, and so there's this analogy here between the ratios that make up music and the ratios that make up the cycles in nature, and so that's the music of the spheres and so there was this idea that the cosmos is full of this music this divine music that had to do with the harmony of uh, mathematics so we have the guitar here so if um let's just use one string on the guitar and do you happen to know where you probably do um where you'd have to press down on one of those strings in order to divide it in half
1: well there are 12 frets that make an octave Okay. So um, I mean the half is really the tritone, which is like this this red right here. Oh sorry. That's the fifth. See a halfway is not a it's not a nice uh <laughs> that's
2: half- the most no,
1: I actually I meant halfway from here to I'll here. Here to here. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's right here. That's the twelfth fret. Right.
0: The octave. Right. So to go up an octave, you divide the string in half. So that's a one to two ratio. And similarly, if you, I don't know if we can do this here quickly, but if you uh... if damien were to put his finger down two-thirds of the way that would make another uh... another one of the tones in the scale
1: actually the the nice way to to demonstrate all this is is with harmonics Mm -hmm. which means that basically you just lightly touch the string at a certain point and then pluck it and then it vibrates um, in that mode so for example if i lightly touch it on the octave hear that octave and then you can there's other harmonics for example on the fifth and seventh frets which are like the two-thirds point and three-fourths and then the three-fourths so there's two octaves there
3: it's
1: hard to get that one
3: yeah
1: and then the the two-thirds is the fifth so, you have uh, the first as an octave, that's the midway point. And if you go two thirds, you get a fifth. And if you go a quarter, you get another octave. Thanks! You can, you can get other ones too, like. <laughs> there are higher harmonics. Like, this one's hard to hear, but. go that the harder they are to really
0: yeah get. and mathematically these are all ratios and the most um i guess pleasing tones are the ones that are in the simplest ratios like of one to two that's the octave where the two notes sound almost like the same note it's just double the frequency so um, and then the other simple ratios are two to three and three to four and those are all very pleasing combinations of notes and then you get into higher and higher uh, ratios of numbers and things start to sound more and more dissonant and so the idea is that the nature has somehow built into it these uh, ratios of numbers and so this is kind of the inspiration for Pythagoras's uh, intuition that the world is made of number and uh, modern physics has really shown that this is indeed true because all of modern physics is thoroughly mathematical and um, is expressed in terms of mathematical principles. So that's the uh, the inspiration for this whole work. And I have a few quotes here. Maybe I'll just read a few of them that relate to this. Um, Dr. Wolfe said that... Uh, mathematical thought is the speech of the divinity in the inner consciousness mathematics was a big part of his path and he felt that the practice of mathematics this is his picture by the way in his old age Joel can hold that up maybe And it was, it was his dream to, uh, well, maybe you can talk about this. Did he express this to you, his dream of... got on the table,
4: Joel. Yeah, you should be here. <laughs> We'd like to see this. Yes, his, his dream was actually some, something like that. I've forgotten exactly the language used, but someday that you could uh, that you can make mathematics into a spiritual path itself. And, um, and also to be able to express... Uh, mystical um, ideas, mystical concepts, and in fact, he did some work himself with, with infinities and stuff, and he would give mathematical analogies uh, of of what he was trying to express often mm-hmm. so if, uh, uh, i don 't remember any of them specifically offhand that I could give, but he was already sort of fooling around with this
0: right in um, pathways through to space, his first book um, written after he was enlightened. He wrote that um, the union of pure mathematics with metaphysical insight represents the synthesis of East and West in the highest sense and is the prerequisite of the development of a culture which will transcend anything the world has known so far. So this is a little uh, anticipation of this project as well, of creating a new worldview. Uh, connecting mathematics with mysticism um... there are uh... if you're interested there are quotes from Jung, Jung studied this issue as well, the number as an archetype in the unconscious and it's uh... the important role it plays in as a in his terms as an archetypal uh, power in the psyche in the collective unconscious and he viewed it as one of the most fundamental archetypes that there are a lot of the archetypes in the un- collective unconscious were um, very much uh, human kinds of archetypes they were uh... valid for all humanity um, and mm-hmm. some of them took on a somewhat cosmological sense as well if they were a lot deeper they seemed to have some kind of uh significance for the the whole cosmos as well and he viewed number as one of these that was kind of one one of the archetypes that was so deep that it wasn't merely valid for humanity but for the whole physical world and cosmos as well and so he was uh in line with the Pythagorean insight there as well so As mathematics has developed since the time of Pythagoras, the the notion that everything is a number got kind of modified, because as mathematicians investigated the nature of number, they found that there was actually a more fundamental concept that was needed, and that's the idea of a set. Uh, and the reason for this has to do with the fact that not all numbers can really be described in terms of the integers. Um, you might know those as the irrational numbers like the square root of 2 and pi and so on. You can't uh, write them down as like a simple fraction, a uh, ratio of two integers. If you were to expand uh, out, a, write it in decimal form, any rational number, it would either end or it would start repeating in some uh, small pattern. Would re- just repeat the digits like one two three one two three one two three. Would just repeat on and on. Whereas with an irrational number like pi or the square root of two, it never repeats and it never ends. And so you can never finish writing it down. You can never actually write down the decimal expansion for the square root of two. You can get close to it. You can approximate it but you can't write that down. So in a certain sense, it's uh, inexpressible in terms of uh, integers. And so the way that modern mathematics has, in a sense, grabbed a hold of these irrational numbers is uh, by developing a mathematics of the infinite. And in order to do that, they had to develop set theory, which uh, is based on the fundamental idea of a set. And a set is really just a distinction that uh, distinguishes something inside of it from something outside of it. So for example, there's the set of uh, letters in the alphabet, and the, let's say, the English alphabet. So we have the 26 letters from A to Z that are inside that set, and those are distinguished from everything else. So for example, a letter in the Arabic alphabet is not inside of that set. A number, like the number 2, is not inside that set, it's not one of the letters, and, and so on. Uh, a, a tree is not inside that set. So everything else except those 26 letters are inside that set. So that distinction, that set, is defined by simply saying what's inside and what's outside and the same could be said for the set of uh, all the integers one two three four five six and so on forever that's an infinite set and the letter a is not in that set because it's not an integer but all the integers are in that set so it's an infinite set um... you can also think of something like this this table in the center of the room here as a as a set it's a set whose elements are everything the table is made of. So there's, this is an unusual table. It doesn't have four legs. It has a, a cube that's holding it up. So it has a cube and a glass, uh, a sheet of glass sitting on top of it and a couple metal bars supporting the glass that are connected to the tube, so, or the cube. So you could say that the, the members of this set are the piece of glass, the two metal bars, and the cube. And so the the table, which we think of as one thing, the table, we don't have to say every time we refer to Maggie's table here, the cube with the two bars and the glass lying on top. No, we just say the table. And so that's, the set is a way of taking those various things and putting them together into one thing. And so this is in fact the very definition that the mathematician Cantor gave for set. He said the set is, a set is a many that is conceived of as a one. So whenever you take various things and simply conceive of them as one thing, you've made a set. So really anything we, we think can be thought of as a set, or as a distinction between what's inside and what's outside, to use a spatial metaphor so for example if i have the thought of the table then that's defining that set of the of what the table is as opposed to everything else and if i say the word table that's going to mean something to you as long as you understand what that refers to what's inside of that boundary that i'm saying when i say table That's that word, you might say, is evoking that distinction. So if I say kitchen, I haven't specified which kitchen, but probably I would guess most of you thought of that kitchen right over there in the other room. And we could say roughly that that distinction is defined by, uh, you might say, various planes that, define that room it's like a I'm not sure if it's exactly a box but it's something similar to a box over there so it's a three-dimensional space over in that part of the house and the borders of that space are the distinction and it distinguishes the kitchen from the rest of the house and the rest of the world and the rest of the universe and so the word kitchen is implicitly an instruction for you to draw that distinction and think of what's inside of that boundary and so, you could take anything at all, really, and think of it in these terms, that fundamentally, everything is a distinction. And in fact, there couldn't be anything without a distinction. Can anyone tell me why?
2: You could have everything.
0: And there'd be no distinction? Right.
2: Yeah, just the unity.
0: But it isn't unity distinct from plurality?
2: Well, if everything's in it, a set of everything. <laughs>
0: this is interesting, because that's actually a paradox of set theory. That um, Can you actually conceive of the set of everything? Well, if you, if you conceived of that set, then well, what about that set? That's not in it. You've just made something else, and so you have to put that set in it. And so there's something paradoxical here when you start uh, conceiving of what you might call the absolute in terms of distinctions. You might say there's one thing, to put the word in quotes because it's not really a thing, there's one thing that isn't based on distinction and that's what's before distinction. But even to say it's before distinction is to distinguish it from distinctions. And see, we get into another paradox here because how do we even define distinction? Well, to think about what a distinction is, we have to think of it as distinct from something else. And so, really, you need distinction to define distinction. Maggie? For distinctions you just
3: create
0: a boundary. Mm-hmm. It's almost anonymous. Right. Yeah, so, so everything can be boiled down to a distinction, and a distinction boils down to itself. It's kind of self-referential and paradoxical there. You need a distinction to define what distinction means, and so it, it, you might say in order to create a distinction, you need a distinction, and so distinction just has to somehow magically appear, if it's going to appear. Because if you try to trace it back to something else, you're going to have to assume there's a distinction. This is if you're tracing it back in kind of a logical sense. Does anyone have any questions or comments so far? There are a few um, quotes here that I might throw in uh, from some mystics that relate to this stuff, just to um, maybe connect it a little bit for you. Uh, Nicholas of Cusa, who was a a Christian theologian and mystic in the Middle Ages, uh, said, In God, we must not conceive of distinction and indistinction, for example, as two contradictories. Distinction is not other than indistinction. So this relates exactly to the paradox that we came up with, uh, with Wesley's point there. Um, Dionysius who was a, uh, well, I guess an early Christian thinker, but he was kind of in the Neoplatonic stream of thought as well. He said the one, which is his word for the absolute, is there before every oneness and multiplicity. So there's the idea that the one is even before the idea of oneness. And so there's kind of a paradox there as well. And then there's Nagarjuna, the Buddhist philosopher, who says, when difference is not evident, there is neither difference nor identity. So that's just the same idea again. So let's talk about this first distinction. Now when we create a... Distinction, as I said, we're we're distinguishing, um, we're distinguishing the distinction from what it's not, because there there aren't any things created yet, and so there's nothing really to distinguish the distinction from other than sort of what it's not, and so we might say that the distinction creates a something out of nothing and and the nothing that it creates it out of it creates along with the something right so so let's just symbolically represent this distinction by a circle on this chalkboard and let's just say that that the something that's created is on the outside of the circle and the nothing that's created is on the inside of the circle and we'll just just uh, arbitrarily call the nothing N and the something M.
3: So what it comes out of is uncreed?
0: Right. The chalkboard was always there in this metaphor.
1: What do you mean by nothing and something?
0: What's inside the circle and what's outside or in more abstract terms, the the distinction is something, and what it's distinct from is nothing.
1: So is this, is distinction the the line? Is it the boundary? Is that the distinction? Or is the distinction the something that's M?
0: We're confusing the two. On purpose? Yeah. <laughs> yeah because
1: the our our
0: um our symbols are operating here on this chalkboard and stuff on a level that's in a, in a sense too crude to represent what's happening at this very subtle level
1: okay. so <clears throat> Are we going to get to the, the real stuff?
0: So, <laughs> so uh, another way you can think of this, we, we could make this, uh, this representation a little more pure, you might say, if we, um, let's say I, I covered this whole chalkboard with chalk and then I erased a disk inside of it. Or I erased everything around a disk let's say. Or you could say, what, ha- what would happen, if, instead of drawing this uh, circle as a boundary, what if I just sort of shaded an area of the chalkboard? So the, the shaded area, well, I guess if I'm going to call the outside the something, Yeah, yeah. so the chalkboard's originally green, and I shade a portion of it white, and I could say, well, the the portion that's shaded is something, and and it's being distinguished from what wasn't shaded, but both the shaded and the non-shaded areas are still part of the chalkboard. Okay? So, let's symbolize, um, let's write A to represent the chalkboard, the entire chalkboard that was pre-existing and continues to exist, obviously, because we're writing on it here. Um, Wait,
1: sorry, is this a distinction you're making? <laughs>
0: it's a symbol. Is it,
1: does it, is it a mm-hmm. distinction?
0: well that depends on you
1: because again it's like just Wesley's thing again right Right. it was a distinction it's a distinction of, of everything right
0: this is something that's inconceivable you can't really think about it
1: but we're so this is like a non-dual
3: thing right okay <laughs>
0: Sorry. but we're we're uh... we're representing all of this symbolically on this chalkboard and so on so we're working in in a form, in a metaphor here, in a symbolic metaphor. So we can't...
4: yeah. Let me just add something. This is the problem is, you cannot... T- let's call this, well, at least calling A, the absolute, or maybe the void or something like that, you can't talk about it until you have distinction. Because... just because our words, as he was demonstrating, table and all that, are mm-hmm. distinctions. Mm-hmm. So if we don't have any distinctions, mm-hmm. Then we can't talk about this. So we, we are now talking about it in hindsight, so to speak, after the fact. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes it seem paradoxical. Mm -hmm. So, so you have to, in a certain sense, erase for a moment all distinction from your mind. Sound like mysticism here. And then, (laughs) and then, boom. That's what, that is what is there prior to any distinction. But see, even if I say that, I'm distinguishing prior and afterwards. So the only, the only real meaning of that is to actually experience that. Right, to actually be that. No, no well, words. no, because we can, what we're saying is we can represent this now, this is,
1: there's a way of... But, but what I mean is when you do represent it, it's, 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 you're prone to all sorts of mistakes in that, in yeah. that representation. Yes, you are,
4: and you're, but you're prone to paradox is what you are, and then if you start taking the paradox, trying to figure out the paradox, you you never can do it. So this is why we have to This is a mathematics that begins before mathematics, before distinction. That's the hardest part of this whole thing to kind of grasp, because you can't grasp it. But it's necessary to do that in order to get mathematics. Mm -hmm.
0: So, let's call this outside portion of the circle uh, that I've designated M, let's relate it to the idea of form And let's relate the inside to the idea of emptiness. Then insofar as the space inside and outside of that boundary are both the chalkboard, we can say that that A is emptiness and A is form, and since both emptiness and form equal A, emptiness is form and form is emptiness you might have heard that before (laughs) (laughs) so that that can be written as A equals N and A equals M and this is kind of a level where we've we've made this distinction we've named both sides but we're equating them which is a contradiction since we're saying well this is not this they're on different sides but we're writing them as equal so this is a, a level of contradiction, because we've made a distinction and now we're denying it. So this is a contradictory paradox uh, on this level. Now, in set theory, when <coughs> when you uh, want to describe a set, like the alphabet, you use these squiggly brackets, and then you just put the elements inside. So for example, the the set of letters from A to Z, would be written like this, with a squiggly bracket and the letters A through Z, and then another squiggly bracket. (coughs) And you can think of this as representing kind of the idea of drawing a distinction around those letters. So if we draw a distinction around N, for example, we would get M because M is on the other side of that distinction, N. So if M is, you might think of this as saying that the opposite, what's on the other side of the distinction of N is M. So you could say what's not Emptiness is form, and what's not emptiness is emptiness. And so that makes the the paradox or the contradiction more explicit to think of this distinction as a negation. Okay, so I've just introduced a little bit of notation here. Now I want to point out another thing, um, which is that if you're on one side of this distinction and you cross to the other side, have you left the chalkboard? Mm -hmm. No. So that means that if you try to put a distinction around A, you still get A. Which is like saying that not true is true. It's, it's kind of a, a blatant contradiction as well.
2: Isn't that the set of a too.
0: Right. Yeah. And this actually relates back to what uh, we discovered with your everything idea, which is that if you try to think of everything, well, then you make a set of it and you find out that you haven't really thought of everything. And so that even that set of everything must be everything. And so this is a way of saying that. That you end up with that kind of uh, relationship. So it's kind of a paradoxical uh, idea that this is expressing.
2: Tom, huh? the A between the parentheses isn't that outside of the
3: A, the way you kind of like the opposite to it or the outside of it, as you put it, in the, when you have the N there.
0: Well the A is the blackboard.
3: Right. So it's, the
0: it's
4: A in isn't it outside of the blackboard. It's just a set. But,
0: you know. I'm not sure I understand what Oh, you've...
4: if you're saying not A, aren't you saying not on the blackboard? Oh.
0: Well, this this parentheses refers to this line, this distinction on the blackboard. So what it's saying is that if you move around on the blackboard from one side of that to the other, you're still on the blackboard.
4: You can think of it also as an, in in geometric terms, as an infinite blackboard. So in fact, you can't. Blackboard is the place where you draw distinctions. So you can't have, you can't distinguish blackboard from, in that sense, from you can't go any place else. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Right.
0: Now, if instead of writing A, we We simply um, leave a blank space. I'm erasing all my A's on the board here, but leaving everything else, including the equal signs and everything. We get expressions like this where we have N equals M equals nothing, a blank space. We have an expression such as the set of, nothing equals nothing and this is uh, you might say a more direct kind of uh, way of saying that form is emptiness because the the nothing is a very uh, very good way of representing emptiness and the and the brackets here that represent a set uh, is a good way of saying something so something is the same as nothing so you can think of that as absurd or profound, depending on your state of mind. So now, what we're going to do is um, we'll make first of all we'll make the observation that we can't get very far if everything's equal to everything else in terms of mathematics uh, or or anything really. We can't talk about some things and how they're related to other things if everything's Uh, totally identified with everything else as we've done here. And so in order to get mathematics or any kind of discourse or form or anything, we need to somehow make a distinction or at least pretend that we've made a distinction. So what we'll do is that we will pretend that form is not emptiness. So instead of having... uh, this be an equal sign between the brackets and the empty space will make it an inequality sign. And this says that the set of nothing is not nothing. We've actually distinguished them now and we're going to hold fast to that. And so uh, that means that N is not equal to M but it does mean still that M is equal to the other side of the distinction from N. So, if you're in one space and you cross the distinction, sure enough, you're in the other space because we are maintaining this distinction. So, that remains an equal sign. If, if, we're, um, if we're going to maintain this distinction, and you're on the inside of it, and I in effect say go to the outside by drawing brackets around the N, then you'll be in the other space, which is M. And that's still true. What, what isn't true anymore is that the two spaces are identical to each other, because we've distinguished them now. See, before we were thinking, you might say, in, on the level of the absolute, where everything's identified. And now you might say we're thinking on the relative level where we're admitting of distinctions. In particular, we're admitting of this distinction between form and emptiness. So we'll say, okay, well, let's say form is other than emptiness. Then what? That's kind of what we're doing, you might say. So
3: that's having entered duality.
0: Yeah, exactly. So now uh, the challenge and this is exactly what Joel and I have been struggling with, is from this understanding, once you you understand that you've dropped into duality, how can we now work with this and sort of intuitively get to things like 2 plus 2 equals 4, and 7 minus 3 equals 4. Yeah, that's
3: right.
0: (laughs) So... This is one way to do that.
4: Yeah? Are you gonna talk about Spencer Brown later? You better credit him with with this part of it.
0: With which part of it?
4: Well, coming up with this idea, the void and and uh, and how distinction comes out of the void and everything, you know.
0: Yeah, well he what he did is unless
4: you're gonna get to that later, I just
0: well, it's sort of uh, you might say there's, um, yeah, I'll just insert it here. There's a book called Laws of Form written by a mathematician about 30 years ago. And he starts with the idea of making a single distinction and what he does is he derives logic and the laws of logic, from that and and a very very primitive arithmetic that involves only two values and you can't count to ten with that or add or subtract numbers Uh, and so it's a very elementary you might say the two values are true and false and that's why it corresponds to logic because it's just a binary system and so his distinctions um, and I've he alluded to that here is that his interpretation of his distinction is uh, the logical negation. So if you draw a distinction around something in his system, it means not that. And so you could, you could um, say if, if you wrote down something that's true and you wrote a distinction around it, on the other side of that distinction would be false. And if you had something else that was false and you drew a distinction on it, then that would be true. And he develops this whole system into a, a kind of a calculus of distinctions, but it's limited just to logic. And so, did you want to say more than that?
4: Well, I just wanted to say that, because that, you said this is what Joel and I have been working on. We didn't, we started offensive oh, right. of Browns' work. I just want to give credit right. the creditors do. And he was the one who originally came up with this very primitive idea of distinction and uh, how a distinction distinguishes two sides and and then how that can be interpreted in the logic, which is interesting because, I don't know if you're going to get into this, but this shows you uh, that actually logic, we think of logic as, as just the most primitive thing. Logic is where we begin, but logic is actually... It comes out of this very initial process of imagining distinctions. So, and he calls this arithmetic. It might be a question of semantics, but a lot of people have, in the last couple of centuries, have tried to base arithmetic on logic. And what he's showing is that actually logic comes out of an arithmetic, a very, very primitive proto arithmetic. So, it's worth mentioning here because from this one thing of drawing a distinction in the void, you get logic. And then we're going to see how we get a full-blown uh, mathematics.
0: There, are, there are actually, as long as we're mentioning other people here, there are some uh, other mathematicians who um, have developed other systems of uh, more complicated arithmetic based on distinctions, uh, and they kind of fall into two groups. One of them uh, has the virtue of staying. Uh, kind of very true to Spencer Brown and connecting it with the very first idea of distinction and um, but they don't get very far with it they only get to uh, positive numbers they can't for example work with negative numbers Um, and we struggled (coughs) with trying to extend that further to negative numbers and kept running into blind alleys and up dead ends and so on and there was another set of people who um, in particular uh, Jeffrey James who did a uh, his master's thesis on this work at the University of Washington a few years ago and he uh, he started with the idea of three different kinds of distinctions and he just pulled those out of a hat and uh, pulled a bunch of rules out of the hat and. Uh, kind of laid them down ad hoc and said, okay, now we can get arithmetic from these. And it was really kind of elegant how, even though he just pulled these out of a hat, it was still pretty neat how he could develop a lot of powerful uh, mathematics from just these three distinctions and a few rules about them. And so, uh, so we also tried to connect his rules and his three distinctions back to spencer brown somehow and the laws of form and the single distinction and his rules about the distinction and that was actually the the route that we ended up taking in the end is is connecting Jeffrey James fundamental axioms to more fundamental ideas and you might say that was our contribution
4: and let me just say one Mm -hmm. thing if you think about it so, this is what we were grappling with, what does it mean to have three different distinctions? I mean, a, dis- a distinction distinguishes a something from a nothing, or a set from what isn't in the set. So, what could it possibly mean to have two different kinds of distinction? I mean, you see the problem? And the beauty of Spencer Brown's work was, everything is just a distinction, you're just operating with, with a distinction, the idea of distinction, you don't have anything else. So if you have uh, let's say a distinction within a distinction, then you could think of that as an element within a set, but it's just distinctions and so and then in terms of like this uh, this negation is in mathematical terms an operation. So really what you do is you have a distinction uh, let's, can you just draw a circle mm-hmm. And then you draw a circle around it you've negated that distinction. you've operated on it. But you still have distinction. There's no, there aren't anything else here but distinctions. Everything is made of distinctions, and everything operates through distinctions. So the operator becomes the operand, and vice versa. That's why I'm this maybe is a little over your head mathematically. It's almost over my head mathematically, but it's the the simplicity of it was what was so beautiful about Spencer Brown that we just love and so that's what we were trying, why it was so important to connect this back to that original simplicity.
0: Yeah, and this, by the way, this idea of uh, nesting two distinctions like this uh, actually relates to something I wanted to show here, which is that if we, if we start, let's say, inside the circle marked N, and we cross the distinction and arrive at M, which is shown by this equation here and then we cross again, we'll get back to n. So if we cross once and cross again, we'll be back to n. So I can write that as n is equal to n with two distinctions around it, which is a way of saying if you start in n and you cross over to m and then cross again, you're back to n.
4: Which in logic is the double negative, not not. Brings you back to this, like our president said, not over my dead. No, what he says, not over my dead body, right? Let's say over my dead body. <laughs> but when he said this, he's not going to fight for it very much. <laughs>
0: and you can see that this is also true for M. If you start in M and cross once to N, and then cross again, you're back in M. And so, in general, n- whether you're an N or M, let's just say X, and by X I just mean a variable. You can plug in M for that, or you can plug in N for that. Doesn't matter. Either way, if you cross twice, you get back to where you were.
1: What if you had like two distinctions, like two circles within each other? Then you're crossing two distinctions, but you're not
0: Well, the thing is that this squiggly bracket refers to the same distinction. And so, this is crossing a distinction and crossing again the same distinction. So we don't yet have two different distinctions to cross, so that never arises. Mm -hmm. So here's kind of what you might say is the first um, algebraic law of our arithmetic here. And it'll turn out that this corresponds to the rule that x equals negative negative x that we can think of one side of this distinction as positive and the other side as negative. And so this is just saying that, well, the negative of a negative is the number you started with.
2: Can, could you just comment on the... somehow I missed how the n in brackets is not n.
0: Because the brackets mean the distinction. It's so the,
2: It's the set of n, though, right? So how can the set of n be equal to m?
0: Well, it's not, the set of n is not n, because n is in the set. And so it has to be what isn't n, which is m. Well,
2: the set
0: of n is not n, that's right. So here's one of our rules. And... So, the, the question arises now, well, how do we get more than one number? I mean, we can think of, uh, we can think of m as representing, say, positive 1, and n as representing negative 1, and this tells us that, well, if you take the negative of either one of these twice, you'll get the same number back again, but this doesn't let us get 2, 3, and 4. Where do those numbers come from? And the clue for that is that if you, if you go back and you think about what's, let's go back and think about this equation, where if you start with n and you cross the distinction, you end up with m. Well, in order to, what you might say, uh, in order to follow this instruction, in order to evaluate this expression, you have to be able to take, both n and the instruction to cross together. You have to both remember the state n and remember to cross the distinction. And you have to take those two together. If you just take crossing the distinction, well, you don't know where you're crossing from. And so you don't know where you'll end up. If you take just n, well, then you haven't crossed the distinction. And so you have to be able to, in a sense, remember two things and hold them together as one. And this is, creating a set, drawing a distinction. And so taking these two things together here is drawing another distinction. It's it's implicitly creating a new kind of distinction which is none other than memory. I have to be able to remember both of these. I have to be able to remember where I am and, and to cross. If I can remember two things, then I can evaluate this. Really, I only have to remember one thing because then the, uh, the instruction to cross arises and I don't really have to remember that, I just do it. As long as I remember where I am, then I can end up somewhere definite. So if I can remember, then I can follow instructions like this. And this is the clue to counting because if I can remember, well then I can um, write down something like MM and I can say, well, if I can remember two things, then then I can write down something like MM, and that ought to mean something. And what does it mean? Well, it means two. I've indicated this side of the distinction twice. And because I have memory, I can remember both of those, and I know that they're distinct from just naming this side of the distinction once. And the same for the n on the inside, I can, I can say nn, and so what this, so nn is minus two, and what this ends up to be is just kind of like counting sticks, so three m's is equal to three and three n's is equal to minus three. So now we have the numbers, and let me, just for fun, because I don't want to bore you too much with all these rules, but remember that, um, let's go back to the idea of A. If If you write down NM. That's like saying true-false, or plus-minus, or yes-no, or they kind of cancel each other out. And the idea is that, well, if, if you say, well, the inside and the outside, then in a sense you're just talking about the whole blackboard. If you say the inside and the outside, if you just say both of them, then you're just talking about the blackboard. So, Nm we can identify with the whole, with A, which I erased before. And so, Nm is just an empty space. And so, we can evaluate these two together. And if you remember that this equation here, that M is equal to the opposite of N, N with brackets around it, that is, then I can write this M in terms of another N so M is where you end up if you cross from N so I can just write that here instead of the M and so I have A or the void is equal to N next to N in brackets and a similar argument can show us that the same is true if this is M, because M with brackets around it is just N, and MN is just like saying the whole board again, so that's equal to empty space. And so, since this is true for both M and N, we can write in general the void is equal to X next to X with brackets around it. Well, if the brackets mean um, negative, then this is a way of saying any number plus its negative is zero. So, this corresponds to zero equals x minus x, or x plus minus x, you might say. And so here we have another algebraic law of the integers. So we have the integers, and we have these rules that they can obey. We can also derive some others, but I won't bother doing that. And I'll just, I won't go through all the details, but I'll just say that Multiplication can be thought of as arising out of uh, two other kinds of distinctions. In order to get the numbers, we made this distinction that was related to memory, and if we continue, we need to. We'll make two other distinctions that relate to the. Uh, Well, really the idea of threeness. You can think of three as uh, the idea of remembering three times, regardless of whether you're remembering M or you're remembering N. And if you apply that thrice remembrance to any number, that's multiplication. And so three is the idea of remembering something three times. And if that something is m, that's just the number three. That's like three times one. If that something is, say, two m's, then you're remembering two m's three times, and that's six. And so that, in kind of a nutshell, is how multiplication arises. And there are two other distinctions that are needed in order to Uh, consistently express that and you end up with the system of Jeffrey James and a whole bunch of arithmetic
4: up to imaginary numbers yeah why don't you write an imaginary number in in distinctions can you do that or do you have a
0: yeah I think I have it here I have I so the other two distinctions we have the squiggly brackets and um the other two are the round brackets, which I've used here in the conventional sense, and square brackets. And so those are the three types of distinctions. It's just notation. And so this won't
4: really mean. I'm always putting it up there, I got to tell you that I made Tom promise me once that uh, that when we were early in this project, that before I died, even if I was on my deathbed, he would come and show me how you could express imaginary number in Spencer Brown's notation. And
3: he did
0: it. This is just a complicated way of writing minus one to the power of one half. Okay, there will be a test at the end. Uh oh, I'm I'm going to run out of board space here is the problem. So, cool? <laughs> so for what it's worth
4: The most beautiful thing you ever seen
3: <laughs>
4: It's
0: kind of a complicated expression But that's mm, that's what the imaginary unit Turns out to look like
4: That's the secret to Schrodinger's equation
0: <laughs> Now there's just a couple things um, oh,
3: right. what were those three distinctions Oh, Can right. you, like, say that equation? Mm-hmm. Like, if you were to say it, what would you it sound <laughs> like? I mean, no, because you said it's like not that or
2: crossing to or...
0: Right, it gets complicated to say it because there are three different kinds of distinctions. So you have to say, You know, rounded distinction within curly distinction within two bracketed distinctions next to uh, a curly distinction containing a bracketed distinction containing two round distinctions, all of that within two round distinctions. Something like that.
3: (laughs) <laughs>
0: yeah, kind of like two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions, and a mm-hmm. sesame seed bun. Oh, yeah. So, um, just to give you an ex- a few examples of how we can use this kind of symbolic mathematics to express some mystical ideas, we can write equations like this, we already saw this one, which is form is emptiness, emptiness is form. Um, Let's see, there's a quote here by Nicholas of Cusa that says, According to the movement of reason, plurality or multitude is opposed to unity. So that was when we fell down into duality. Plurality or distinction is opposed to unity. Um, Hence, that unity is of the sort is not a unity uh, that properly applies to God, but the unity to which neither otherness nor plurality is opposed. So this is the idea that the the God is not opposed to either otherness or unity. You
4: see what he's done here? He just translated what Who's a into mathematics? You give it a mathematical expression.
0: And so let me see if I can do this one. Let's see. Uh, the Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. The name that can be named is not the eternal name. These two... I'm still quoting from Lao Tzu, these two spring from the same source but differ in name. And then there's Nagarjuna (laughs) who says that, um, well he has this four-cornered argument which is uh, if you take anything and you uh, you negate it well, the thing he says the thing isn't true, and the negation of the thing isn't true, and neither is the both the thing and its negation, and neither is both the thing and its negation. Whoops, I'm not losing my squiggles here. So these are like his four things that are negated, and you can express all of those in terms of distinctions. So if you plug in anything for X, this will run you through the the various possibilities that he discusses.
2: These are four possibilities for four ways to...
0: You might think of these as four ways of grasping, Grasping, subtle grasping, even more subtle grasping, and super subtle grasping, (laughs) and he says, drop it all. So, are there any questions or comments, or?
1: Well, one question is, what are, can you briefly explain what the square bracket is and the curly bracket and the smooth, round bracket?
0: Are there any other questions?
3: <laughs> I
0: don't think I could briefly do it. I can do it for you, but it may take a little while. Yeah. Do
3: it's possible to write some of the key lines from the Diamond Sutra in Mathematical?
0: Did you have any key lines in mind?
3: Well, the, the, the famous four lines uh, form is Emptiness, emptiness exploring form is not other than emptiness, emptiness is not other than, either. it's just that top line is all, it's all in there. Yeah, area.
0: it's all condensed in that one equation. So you just need to meditate on that one equation,
3: you've got the whole... Let's make fun for <laughs> 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 But actually
4: you could write it out. <laughs> I mean, it is all there, you don't have to write it anymore, but you could write it out by, you know, negating, negating, negating. Yeah. One of the ways to think of distinction is distinction itself is a negation. It is a creation and a negation, but... If I just have a blackboard, I'm just this void, and I create a distinction, I have negated in a certain sense the unity of the blackboard. I've I've created a a something, and then I've in a certain sense negated or hidden the the everything. I'm speaking loosely now. So every distinction is is a negation of what was before that distinction, and it's a creation. So both <laughs> creation and destruction are built into the whole concept of distinction or I shouldn't even say concept of distinction distinction is just something the mind does I mean we're now we see we're already one of the problems of this and why it's difficult to grasp is we're already we've already come a long way in making distinctions and now we are creating a new language to go back and talk about and trace back where did this all come from and we get to the point where you erase the last thing on the chalkboard and then you can't say anything anymore. But once you erase it, you see the chalkboard. Oh, that's what's left, so to speak. I mean, that's one way to look at it. Uh, One of the beauties of uh, Spencer Brown's original work, and then this is, is just that, that you take this language and you start pondering it and there are just so many ways you see all these mystical philosophical ideas and so forth are all just expressed in something that simple. And they're all right there. So one of, one of uh, Tom's future projects is going to be to go through all the great works of all the great mystics and <laughs> literally you know, write the language, right? That <laughs> if I live long enough. <laughs> but are those, is that the three distinctions of
3: Jeffrey James In the, the creation, the negation, and the, the uncreated?
4: Well, they're not... They're, it's all, it's, Jeffrey James thought of them as three different kinds of distinctions. But they're all distinction. There, are, there are no three different kinds of distinctions. But you distinguish. There are different distinct, different ways of distinguishing. We might say. But we're still just distinguishing. We're not doing anything else but distinguishing. So we're distinguishing. I don't know how, how's the simplest you could put it. We're distinguishing. Uh, there's the first distinction. Well, you. you have to explain in terms of, uh, in a certain sense, restricting. Is that the way we, we do explain it?
0: Yeah, or in terms of um, different aspects of distinction that... Can you
3: illustrate by talking about I? Because apparently you're using well, all three different kinds of distinctions. so without just reading bracket brackets wiggly lines wiggly, can you can you tell us a little bit about I mean can you tell us that equation without
0: well the the these two distinctions end up um, the way they work what I can tell you something about the way they work is that when I was talking about these operators, like the number three is the idea of um, remembering three times. And the idea is that remembering three times doesn't mean much unless you specify what it is that you're remembering three times. And so three needs something to act upon, you might say. And so we need to put something next to three, let's say an X. But in our, in our normal notation, um, when we put two things next to each other, that means add them. Like if when I put M next to N, this is like, uh, this is 1 plus minus 1. That's an implicit addition here between them. Because this is just 1 and this is just minus 1. So the idea of putting two things next to each other is the idea of adding them to each other. These two cancel each other out and you're left with the empty space which is zero and so we, we need a different meaning for putting two things next to each other and so what we do is we use the other distinction to embody or represent that shift in meaning and so this allows us to express the idea of applying this idea of thrice remembering to x and then it turns out that in order to get us back into sort of the normal space we need the other distinction to bring us back. So
3: those brackets signify operations.
0: Right, they they shift us, they shift the meaning of juxtaposition is one way of thinking of it.
4: But you might say another way to look at it is like we learn 3 times 3. Or three times four. Three times four is twelve, and four times three is twelve. And we think three and four the three and the four there, the order doesn't make any difference. And it doesn't make any difference in terms of the outcome. But actually, when you say three times four, that three is is not the same as that four. That three is a is a different order of three. It means Remember four three times, but the three here is not the number four, or it's not a number of the same order. Now that isn't clear in, in the mathematics the way we learn it, but it is clear when you analyze this in terms of distinctions. And it happens to work out. It happens to be what is called uh, what's the word? Associative. What? A commutative. Yeah. So you can go go the other way around. So it'll be interesting to look at. I don't know if you've done this yet, but to look at non-commutative things in terms of this. Mm-hmm. Maybe there'll be something inside there. Who knows? Or anti-commutation. That's not like yeah. quantum mechanics. Well, you see, that's why. That's why I'm bowing out of this project. <laughs> He's going to run with it from now on.
0: We'll recruit people like Damien to help out <laughs> with some of those anti-commutation relations.
4: Sounds like an anti-communist. Wesley,
2: Um, I'm not following that too well but I'm very excited about like you were talking about the table and and saying okay there's a a set of table Mm -hmm. but what I'm hearing is that as soon as I move to a set of table what I have is precisely not table anymore I've got something else I've got something outside of table which is that is a set
0: table well you have the the table is the set of the glass the the metal and the cube and so the moment you make a set out of glass metal cube you don't have glass metal cube anymore you have something else it's called a table Mm
2: -hmm. but even the even the table that you have I mean you don't have the table anymore it doesn't seem like just like when you said that when we had N with the brackets around it, that really wasn't N. That was a set of N, which is not N anymore. Right, it's but. Other than N, which w- means it's outside of N.
0: Right, but the N here corresponds to, like, the glass. Okay. And the M is the table. So, like, the set of, of uh, A through Z is not a letter, it's the alphabet.
2: Um. Well, well, I guess what I'm trying to link this to is that as soon as I say I make the set of Tom
3: mm-hmm.
2: for you, as soon as I do that in my mind, I don't have you anymore. I've got a set of you, which is something imposed upon you and therefore doesn't represent you anymore.
0: Okay, well, the the tricky thing here might be is that there's, there's when you say the set of you, the U there is already a set. Mm-hmm. And so you're making a set of a set. And so, yes, you're right. You, you're you moving one step away from it there. It's like, you, you know, you're doing double brackets around something. You know, there's all the things that make up me that are inside of this set. And then you're making another set of it.
2: But, I mean, who said that you were a set in the first instance?
0: Well, the minute you said you. Oh,
2: okay. Well, i saying... <laughs> I don't know. It, it seems, it seems like there's something that correlates with the idea that as soon as you, as soon as I replace my immediate naked experience of you with a thought, I'm already into something else. Well, you've
4: already distinguished. You can't have an immediate naked experience of him separate from everything else unless you've already distinguished him separate from everything. Else. I mean, so you can have a naked experience, but it can't be of anything so so the and the point about this part i mean when we get down to the to the mystical psychology part of what you might want to say is that we create these this, the the mind creates these distinctions they aren 't there it draws them so i could uh i could you know distinguish that as a table uh and uh or i could not i could uh i mean there 's nothing intrinsically that says this is a table that I have to Put together the rods and the cube and the glass. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? I might, I might. Uh, why not? Why not just keep going and say the uh, the picture and the the um, you know is that, what candle, is that? candle. candle. Goblet, yeah. Actually, that's interesting because maybe maybe I've got two uh, candles on the table. And you went to the store, and I said, uh, "Oh, I want to buy the candles." And you say, "No, no, it all comes as a set." You see what I mean? <laughs> so they. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so all, but all distinctions are imaginary. And one of the th- interesting things, Spencer Brown understood quite well what he was doing. And one of the things he said, at the, when he got to the end of his uh, his work, he said, "This describes, in mathematical terms, what the world would be if it could be." So, in other words, we're not describing reality, we are describing delusion.
3: So, um, what I think of as myself, I'm a collection of molecules and cells and a bunch of thoughts and a bunch of other people's reflections about who I am. I'm a set. That's right. And that's all
4: imaginary set (laughs) from mystic's point of view that's very important an imaginary set, that's right and it's something not that let's let's be careful, it's something that consciousness, if we like to say is doing so, and it has to that's the other thing, we don't understand we have to continue to do that and we see that it's something that we do, when we change our world view or change your way of looking at things, really what we're doing is erasing a lot of distinctions and creating another whole set of distinctions. And then we realize, oh it's something I did. I mean, I here is, you know, I'm not I'm trying not, I can't be too technical again. I'm speaking loosely, you see what I mean? So, you might think, well it's just obvious I'm here, but actually you're continuing to imagine you're here. And if you just stop, for one moment, might be interesting,
2: Yeah, I wonder, like, if, uh, when you think of the Buddha story, when you saw the star, uh-huh. or when, um, when, I think you said this uh, in a retreat one time, someone is awakened, and they, when the next thought arises, and they say it's the same. So is, it, is there, like, some kind of subtle distinction that we do?
4: Or is there? I mean, according to this uh, lecture here, is there a relation like where I can uh, I can write it here? This is beautiful. I can write it for you mathematically. <laughs> so normally, uh, uh, that's, no, that's oh well. So normally, that's a form, right? Mm-hmm. And normally, we think that we perceive it as being. Not emptiness, right? Right. Now, then, so here's the Buddha, the Buddha in samadhi, if you like, and and there's just nothing but blackboard, right? Mm. So then, uh, or no, first it's you. You're coming out of sleep, Mm. dreamless sleep. The first thing that you become aware of is a star, right? Mm -hmm. And so right away, your mind automatically draws a distinction, says that star is not nothing. It's something, right? Now, if you, the difference of realization is that you see that actually this is that. In reality, this equal rather than unequal. But you still understand and can talk about uh, that. So you understand the absolute truth and the relative truth. do. I mean, is that making sense? Yeah. Really what you're saying is that this is... the star is a distinction and it is imaginary. That's what you're saying. So it's not like you're not seeing something different in terms of an appearance, but you're just recognizing, oh, the, the thought I've had all along that this is different from anything else is just
2: imaginary. Are you just Tom? been holding it? Yeah, oh,
0: the, okay. the tray is vertical, so it doesn't work.
2: Will that work on Tom?
4: What? Can we put Tom in there? Do you put anything there, any form. Any form of distinction.
2: Thank you.
1: I have a question. Yeah. The, um, is there a distinction between blackboard, the absolute, and zero?
0: Uh, yeah, because we've distinguished M and N from, when, when we draw that distinction, when we fall into duality, what happens is, is that there's the there's the N side of the distinction, and there's the M side of the distinction. And part of believing that this distinction is real is believing that the N is distinct from the chalkboard, and the M is distinct. These are these are independent realities now, distinct from the chalkboard. So, in addition to this, when you think this distinction is real, then both sides of it become realities as well. That are uh, not the chalkboard.
3: That corresponds to the Buddhist term lokas, the Sanskrit term maybe, the, lo- the lokas, the the different planes of
4: reality get elaborated. Uh, you probably could write <laughs> all that mathematically, but I don't think mm-hmm. it's in a direct way. They're they're talking uh because their lokas are not conceived in terms of the order of subtleties of creation, which which you certainly could described mathematically in certain Kabbalist systems. The lokas are um, are just uh, different realms uh, that transmute into each other, if you like. So it's not uh, necessarily an order of more subtle realms. Uh, the Buddhists actually, uh, and well, that system of codependent arising has no beginning and end. That's the whole purpose of it. It's, I mean, that's the whole, uh, one of the points of it's a wheel, it just goes round and round. But all that is form and all that is emptiness. So in that sense, wherever you are in any of the lokas, doesn't matter, it's all in that sense form. Bardos, whatever bardos you're in or, you know.
3: So I'm thinking of what you've said in terms of the gods the realm of the gods being um, you know, um, they're kind of outside suffering and, you know, they've got really good but they don't know anything about our realm, and wouldn't want to. And um, I was just thinking that you know, one of the, that either that N or M could represent that taking it as a self-evident reality,
4: but ignoring the fact <coughs> that it's, it's well, fine. all delusion is taking this uh, this equation to be real. All right, this equation to be real. So whether you're in, you're in the God realms or not. I mean, whatever realm you are, that, that delusion still holds. The God realms, the gods aren't free of delusion in the Buddhist cosmology. Their only problem is that, um they don't have any suffering. <laughs> 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 it is a problem. And, but eventually they will, so it's not, you know, but for various reasons in their cosmology, they've arrived at a place now they're to have a long time before they have any suffering. And actually that's, in, you can look at it in one way, that's the depth of delusion. Ah, because there's no motivation to wake up there.